From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 2 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by El Cortez and the Golden Steer. A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. Newly sworn in Nevada Governor Robert List barely has time to put up pictures in his office in early 1979 when his life is threatened. Armed with a mass of FBI wiretap transcripts, the young Republican governor is embarking on one of the most critical tasks in the history of the state, breaking the mob's grip on the world-famous Las Vegas Strip. List had been involved in some earlier battles with the mob as the state's attorney general, but now was taking the fight to a higher level. We put everybody on notice that we were gonna revoke all their licenses and that they had to find buyers quickly. So they all, one by one, they did. Some of them were a little more challenging than others. And the Aladdin being one, everybody else voluntarily sold. And we processed every single transaction and approved the new buyers all by the end of the year, every one of them. And it was half the Las Vegas Strip. Basically cleaned the mob out. History tells us that anytime you take on the mafia, whether you're a politician like List, a law enforcement official, or a journalist, it comes with risks. List learned that firsthand. I had a couple of anonymous phone calls where people told me that I should back off. And it was not specific as to which property, but it was essentially that we needed to cool our heels and back off and let things go. And I think I had two successive calls. And so I wore a vest. List says he wore the bulletproof vest more than two dozen times during the ambitious campaign against the mob. There was a clear threat that if I didn't back off, I was going to be hurt. I wore it off and on. I wore it when I was in Vegas, mainly. And I remember on several occasions, I flew down here in the state plane and I had to meet with people and met with them in the plane out on the ramp rather than even coming through the security gate over to Hughes South private terminal. But List wasn't deterred. He kept pressing ahead, even in the face of an undercover sting that targeted List himself. I'm Jeff Gehrman, an investigative reporter with the Las Vegas Review-Journal. In partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm your guide for season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, a true story about money. And so it was their piggy bank. They had the ability to get loans for whoever they wanted to get loans for. He just hit us like a tidal wave. Crime. You're in with every gangster and hoodlum in the United States. I don't go for that, Mr. Kennedy. I don't go for that kind of action. I emptied that revolver in his head, then he still was alive and the battle to control the Strip. I was on television accused of fronting for the mob. We were very angry and very upset, and we knew we had been double-crossed. I was really worried about the state of Nevada because uh, it, it was on trial also. 
I've covered organized crime from the streets to the boardrooms of the Strip for more than 40 years. In season two, I'll take you on a fascinating journey as the FBI and State of Nevada take on the mob families. Federal judges battle prosecutors, and two of the biggest names in entertainment fight for the right to replace the mob on the Strip. Just months into office, the FBI handed Governor List a pile of reading material, hundreds of pages of transcripts from secret court-approved wiretaps. The agents had been collecting evidence on mafia families in Chicago, Kansas City, Detroit, Milwaukee, Cleveland, and St. Louis, and how they were wielding hidden influence on the Strip, and even downtown. Among the casinos named were the Aladdin, Stardust, Tropicana, Dunes, and Fremont. The details were just shocking to think that these guys were so crass and so blatant in their own way on what they were doing. I don't think there were too many people that lived in Las Vegas and were knowledgeable that didn't already know that these guys were mobbed up. It was common knowledge on a lot of these guys' backgrounds and their characteristics were very typical of the old mobster guys. But nobody had ever gotten the evidence on it. Nobody had ever been able to establish it and that the skimming was going on until the tapes came, until the wiretaps came. Which is amazing when you think about it, that it hadn't been done years earlier. The FBI wiretaps also played a significant role in the government's crackdown on the mob in Las Vegas, eventually leading to criminal indictments against the top Midwest mob bosses. As Nevada moved against organized crime, other top gaming regulators also received threats. One of them was former U.S. Senator Harry Reid, who at the time chaired the Nevada Gaming Commission, which had the final word over whether licensees were suitable to operate casinos. Reid's story was told in season one of Mobbed Up, but it's worth a small mention again in the context of the epic task that list and state regulators faced. Reid was Nevada's lieutenant governor during the first term of Governor Michael Callahan, the popular Democrat who preceded List. O'Callaghan, a Korean War hero and tough, old-school politician, was a staunch opponent of the mob before the FBI stepped up its pressure on the Strip. And he made sure Reed, a former amateur boxer, was too, when he appointed him to the Gaming Commission. Jeff Schumacher of the Mob Museum says Nevada's attitude toward organized crime got tougher during O'Callaghan's tenure. He didn't like the idea that somehow the mob was running a shadow government here, that it was involved in all these different casinos. And see, he started putting people on the Gaming Control Board and the Gaming Commission who were prepared to more or less go to war with the mob. And they did. Harry Reid can attest to that. Scared the hell out of me. Remember they took, I put a bomb in my car? You know, that was a scary time. So I carried a pistol. I uh, had thing like a garage door opener. I would start the car in the morning by pressing down on that, and it would search the car for a bomb. If it didn't blow up, it would start the car. A bomb was found by his wife, Landra, in 1981. 
Reed says he suspects a man by the name of Jack Gordon, a shady businessman once married to LaToya Jackson, was behind it. In 1978, Gordon and some associates had offered Reed a $12,000 bribe to get new gaming devices approved. Reed reported the bribe attempt to the FBI, and agents helped him set up a meeting in his law office where the illicit payoff was secretly monitored. So the deal was that they would come to my law office, and I would say, is this the money? And when I said, is this the money, that's when they would come in and arrest them. As the story goes, when agents entered Reed's office, Reed grabbed Gordon around the neck and said, quote, You son of a bitch, you tried to bribe me. What was Reed's biggest concern during this turbulent time for gaming? Staying alive, a part of it, and then making sure that I didn't disappoint old Callahan, who put a lot of faith in what I did. And of course, I was really worried about the state of Nevada because it was on trial also. Longtime Las Vegas accountant George Swartz, who served on the Gaming Commission with Reed, remembered Jack Gordon very well. Before he died in December 2020, Swartz told me that Gordon also allegedly tried to bribe him. And about the same time Reed's wife discovered a bomb under the family car, Swartz found one too. Law enforcement was speculating that it was either Jack Gordon or Lefty Rosenthal, who didn't like me very much either. But I've always thought it was Jack Gordon because I figure if it was Lefty, I'd be dead because the bomb didn't go off. The bomb had a, an electrical defect. Lefty was Frank Rosenthal, the notorious odds maker the Chicago mob sent to run the Stardust and skim profits. Swartz said it was Mother's Day 1981, and he had his entire family in the car. I had five kids and my wife, and we drove to church and back. And I told my boys, go out and check, because it's not hitting on all cylinders, something's wrong. And they went out to check, they were teenagers, they went out to check and they came back and said, ah, dad, there's a wire that goes out of the distributor and into the gas tank. And if it had fired, it would have incinerated everybody in the car. Safety was also on the mind of longtime attorney Jeff Silver, who served on the Nevada Gaming Control Board during the O'Callaghan administration. I do recall one instance where a guy came over to provide information about what was going on at the Argent Corporation, and he didn't want to meet me at the office because he thought he might be followed. So I said, well, if you want to come over to my house on a Saturday, you can do that, as long as you think that you're, you're not going to be uh, traced over there. And so he met me at my house and provided me information about some of the activities that were going on. And, you know, I use that as the basis of uh, additional follow-up investigations. But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that this poor guy who came to visit me with this information was never seen again alive. He was a driver for uh, one of the government officials at the time, and he had information. I don't know how he got it, but uh, his car was found at McCarran Airport a couple of weeks later in the parking lot, and no one's ever seen him since. So I knew these guys were playing for keeps. Silver also remembers the time he was summoned to the FBI's office. They gave me a transcript to read, and in the transcript they had mentioned what they thought was my name. They, they called me Silverstein, or Silverman, and uh, they said during the course of the transcript they were going to kill me. It wasn't until the last page of the transcript that I found out that they had uh, decided that, you know, after all, they weren't going to do it because it was going to create too much heat. 
But those are the kinds of things that you have to deal with. Coming up, we'll take a look at a blatant attempt by the mob to skirt the law and keep one of its financially troubled casinos, the Aladdin, afloat. We'll be back after a break. Before the FBI wiretaps, many of the casino licensees who found themselves beholden to the mob behind the scenes had managed to maintain a clean public profile. They simply blended into Las Vegas society. Former Nevada Governor Robert List recalls that very well. I had taken contributions from some of these places. I had to give the money back. I knew that, I did that right away. And I knew a lot of these guys individually, you know? I'd met them over the years. Not the out-of-state guys, but all their front people in Nevada. Take Morris Shanker, who owned the Dunes, for example. He was a St. Louis lawyer who represented Teamsters Union boss Jimmy Hoffa before his well-publicized disappearance in 1975. He was all over town. Everybody knew Shanker. (laughs) And it was was the same way with all these people. They were generous with their contributions, but there was never a moment's doubt that this was an opportunity to do what had to be done. And nobody else had ever had the evidence before. Schenker ended up being among those well-known casino figures caught on FBI wiretaps talking to Midwest mobsters and associates. Jeff Silver knew a little bit about Schenker's darker side. Silver recalls an unusual way in which Shanker tried to use Dune's casino cash to bail out the Aladdin when the Detroit and St. Louis crime families wielded influence there. He walked across the street and had taken money out of his casino cage and went and played blackjack at the uh, Aladdin and lost a lot of money, enough for the Aladdin to have made their payroll that was coming up. And when uh, we found out about it on the Gaming Control Board, we asked Shanker about that. Schenker just said, well, I I really had a feeling that I was going to win, and I decided to go across the street to the Aladdin and gamble over there. And unfortunately, I didn't do too well. But from what we had seen, uh, he lost the money on purpose in order for those guys to get an unregistered loan from him that they wouldn't have to report. Silver says the board told Schenker he was in the wrong. We admonished him that he couldn't take money out of the cage without verification. I don't know if we filed a complaint against him or not, but it became clear that he was helping the uh, Aladdin stay afloat at that point. For Silver, who had struck up a good relationship with the FBI, taking action against the Aladdin and the other mob-ridden casinos was a time of reckoning for gaming enforcement in Nevada. I would say it was pretty much of a domino effect that uh, once one went down, the other started falling rather quickly because now everybody was sensitized to the idea that maybe uh, we could close down a casino. Got some backbone. It didn't kill the economy entirely to issue the death penalty and revoke somebody's license and close the facility. So I think a lot of that started happening all at once and the depth of the problem became more evident with these federal investigations and the fact that the strike force was there with their wiretap capabilities. Everybody started to take notice and realize that this is something, this major problem that they had to address immediately. Bud Hicks, a top deputy attorney general in that era, shares that opinion. Well, I think the federal allegations brought heat down not only on the bad guys in the industry, but on the state generally. 
And the threat was potentially on a federal level, it could make gambling, commercial gambling illegal. So there was a real legitimate concern by state officials that the feds were right. Uh, there were problems and they had to be addressed. The biggest problem was gaining the confidence of the FBI and federal prosecutors. The Fed shared some information, but not everything. Here's former U.S. Senator Richard Bryan, who was attorney general and then governor during that critical time. The feds, by and large, were very distrustful of the state. I think that was the predicate for all of that. And they were not necessarily convinced that the state was going to do the right thing. I think it's fair to say, in retrospect, the state did do the right thing, at least in the 70s, and they did move against uh, these hidden interests in the skimming. Former Gaming Commissioner George Swartz was also in the trenches. As soon as I went on the commission in 75, I became acutely aware of the fact that we had a problem with the mob, with various mob families that were involved in casinos. But it was very hard for the gaming authorities to prove it. And it was especially difficult because at the time, the FBI had made a decision not to trust Nevada authorities. So instead of working cooperatively to try to deal with the mob situation, the FBI and, and the feds in general just seemed to, you know, I can't tell you exactly what their thinking was, but they seemed to take the position that it was Nevada's fault and Nevada didn't care and that they were not going to work with Nevada gaming authorities to try to clean it up. So it was a very difficult situation. And all the time that I was on the commission, we kept dealing with things that the feds had found, but not shared with us. And our investigators at the Gaming Control Board worked under that handicap during this whole period of time. Swartz said it got frustrating because the regulators would hear about the FBI's mob allegations in the media, but often couldn't get the evidence they needed to take action against the casinos. Former federal judge Philip Pro was a top deputy attorney general in Nevada in those days. Pro recalls how he and his colleagues were able to bring action against the Tropicana Hotel without direct help from the FBI after allegations of the mob's plans to skim profits from the casino surfaced publicly. In one of the FBI's more celebrated buggings, agents had secretly recorded a conversation between Kyle Thomas, a squeaky clean gaming executive, and Kansas City's mob kingpins, Nick and Kyle Sevilla, who were wielding hidden influence at the Tropicana. The conversation occurred in the basement of a friend of the Sevillas in Kansas City. In essence, Thomas went back and in the basement, you could almost imagine it from a movie, he said, Nick, meaning Nick Sabella, uh, you know how I love you, but every time I come back here, I risk losing everything I have. And he proceeded to explain how he had worked out skimming at the Stardust and at some other casinos. This, of course, led to an indictment in Kansas City brought by the organized crime strike force there. And as the case became public, the indictment was returned against the Sabellas on this. The wiretap transcripts were filed in court, and I think it may have been an inadvertent filing in the clerk's office, but immediately people got copies of those transcripts. I mean, they wanted them. One of the people who wound up with copies was Ned Day, a columnist for the Old Valley Times. 
Day, who later became a columnist for the Review Journal and a television news anchor, was the top local journalist covering the mob. I remember being scooped by him many times as I was growing into the beat, and I was not alone. The saga of the Kansas City wiretap transcripts was one of his biggest scoops. And he started to print them daily, almost like a Charles Dickens serial. Uh, you know, like Dickens used to do in London a century before. He would lay them out in pieces to kind of tell the story. The judge in Kansas City, when he realized what had happened, he ordered them sealed again, the, the wiretap transcripts sealed, and he ordered everybody that had them to return them. Well, that meant attorneys, you know, had to return them and, and governmental entities, which I think all took place, I'm not sure. But Ned Day didn't feel there was any authority to order a newsman to do that. Pro and his colleagues were in a quandary. They needed to take administrative action against the Tropicana. They knew the transcripts were further evidence of the Kansas City mob's control over the casino, but they couldn't get copies of the transcripts from the court and the federal prosecutors in Kansas City. And so we thought, well, hell, we'll just attach Ned Day's Valley Times articles to our complaint. That will be our evidentiary base because it was clear what it was. And of course, that sealed the deal. That was successful in uh, providing the basis for the removal of the license of Tropicana. The Mob Museum's Jeff Schumacher says the media were zeroed in on organized crime. There's no question that the local media in Las Vegas played a big role in the ultimate demise of the mob in Las Vegas. Uh, they did this in a couple of ways. First of all, they became conduits for state and federal sources, right, who wanted to get messages out into the media. So local press were able to develop sources who were telling them what was going on behind the scenes at these casinos. So they're reporting this to the public. So that, in turn, puts pressure on regulators to act and investigators to put together cases against these mob guys. And it got to the point where there were half a dozen different major stories all going on at once in Las Vegas, and so reporters could barely keep up. Schumacher says all that reporting helped create an environment that encouraged state authorities to keep pushing forward. I think it also attracted federal interest and now you have the federal strike force here that is trying to do everything from go after the mob to looking at public corruption, right? And so suddenly we've got state senators like Floyd Lamb and we have judges like Harry Claiborne who are under scrutiny for taking bribes or collaborating in some way with criminals. And these stories all built out of this sort of changing mindset in Las Vegas that maybe we can do just fine without the mob anymore. Governor Robert List not only led the state's regulatory charge against organized crime, but he also pushed the legislature for more resources. That included requests for gaming control agents and better training and higher wages for them. They gave me dozens of agents and a huge amount of capacity to do what we had to do. We beefed up the gaming control board substantially when all this came out and we, and we commenced the process and the legislature swung in behind us and gave us a lot of capacity to work the cases. And it was really done very swiftly and very efficiently. Still ahead, 
an amazing revelation from List that would catch the governor by surprise during his four-year term in office. Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, Season 2, continues after a word from our sponsors. Joseph Yablonski took over the Las Vegas FBI office in 1980 in the middle of the country's biggest crackdown on organized crime. But the King of Sting also shook up the city's long-standing good old boy network with an undercover political investigation he named after himself, Operation Yobo. The FBI was heavy into stings at the time, like Abscam, which rocked Congress. One of the biggest elected leaders ensnared in the Las Vegas undercover operation was State Senator Floyd Lamb, the powerful Democratic chairman of the Senate Finance Committee and the brother of longtime sheriff Ralph Lamb. Yablonski dispatched an undercover agent who portrayed himself as a shady businessman. The agent swept across the state from the legislature in Carson City to the Clark County Commission in Las Vegas. As Governor List tells it, the agent even approached him and his gaming control board chairman, Richard Bunker, a soft-spoken, close-to-the-vest member of the Las Vegas establishment. Yablonski didn't trust Bunker and saw him as an obstacle to the federal government's campaign against the mob. Relations between the FBI and the gaming control board slipped to an all-time low during Yablonski's time in Las Vegas. They tested everybody. They put the temptation out in front of Richard. They tested me. List says he got a call one day from Floyd Lamb, who wanted him to meet someone. Hello, Bob. This is Floyd Lamb. Are you available for a meeting next week? There's somebody I'd like you to meet. They set up a meeting for the next time the governor would be in Las Vegas. At the meeting in Lamb's downtown office, the undercover agent told List that he was from the East Coast and wanted to build a casino in Las Vegas. And it's, this conversation started off like that. And so he wanted to know, how's the process work? Floyd's told me about it a little bit. And I gave him just a two-minute overview of the board and the commission and you'll be investigated, et cetera. And he said, well, actually, he said, some of us have got some pretty uncomfortable backgrounds and some of us perhaps would not ordinarily withstand a whole lot of inquiry. And then he very quickly moved on and said, however, you're gonna be running for re-election and we're gonna be there for you and you're gonna have all the money you could ever possibly need, et cetera, et cetera. And I uh, stopped the conversation and told him that he, they would be held to high standards and no exceptions. And if that were the case, they're probably wasting their time. And I left the meeting. He, he played the part. I mean, I, I really thought, I was surprised that Floyd would have him there. And I told Floyd that afterward. And I believe they ran the same gig on Richard. Just that they'd take care of him. And how did Bunker react? Told him it was no dice, you know, we don't do things that way. And get out of my office kind of thing. List says he and Bunker didn't learn that the agent was working undercover until later, but both were shocked that they were approached. The hackles went up, I'm sure, for him as they did for me, with the suggestion of payoff. It was really clear. The guy made it very clear that they were dirty. And in retrospect, I guess that's 
the way that they have to operate. But he made it sound as if it wasn't even marginal, you know, that they probably would not qualify or be able to buy this property. And they didn't even have a specific property that we're talking about. It was just, we want to buy a Nevada a Las Vegas casino. List maintains that Bunker always conducted himself honorably in his position as Gaming Control Board Chairman. Bunker died in March 2019. He had a super clean reputation and was well-respected in town, good family, and uh, I was very confident in Richard. And of course, he was tested almost immediately by this, by this other matter, and by the big cleanup, and uh, performed extremely well throughout that period of time. But a lot of Las Vegans with clean reputations got dirtied up when the FBI ran its secret wiretaps in those days. Former longtime U.S. Senator Howard Cannon was one of them. Cannon was at the height of his power as chairman of the Senate's Influential Commerce Committee when the wiretaps uncovered a plot to bribe him in 1979. A couple of years later, International Teamsters President Roy L. Williams and Chicago insurance executive Alan Dorfman were among those charged in the scheme to get Cannon to block a trucking deregulation bill in Congress. Dorfman at the time ran the Teamsters Central States Pension Fund, which had loaned millions of dollars to Las Vegas casinos and helped pave the way for the mob to control a major portion of the Strip. Joseph Joey the Clown Lombardo, a reputed ranking Chicago Mafia member, also was charged in the case. Lombardo oversaw Anthony Spilatro and his rackets empire in Las Vegas. Cannon escaped prosecution, but the investigation ended his political career. He lost his re-election bid to little-known Las Vegas businessman Chick Hecht. And there was another famous Las Vegan who got swept up in the anti-mob craze. Mr. Las Vegas himself, Wayne Newton. The Midnight Idol outbid Johnny Carson for the Aladdin, and that led to a bitter feud that lingered for years. Coming up in season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, Newton sues NBC News for its damning reports linking him to organized crime figures, and he blames Carson, the network's biggest star and moneymaker, for inspiring the report. Newton's lawyer Frank Farenkoff, then chairman of the Nevada Republican Party, was at a bar at the Hyatt Regency on Capitol Hill, days before NBC aired an October 6, 1980 story on Newton. He was watching John Chancellor anchor the news. They were just concluding, and then Chancellor came back on in the last two minutes and said, be sure to tune in next Monday with the story of, of Wayne Newton and the mob. Words of that nature. And I just said, holy, what the hell is that all about? This has been Part 5, Season 2 of Mobbed Up a production for the Las Vegas Review-Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you are enjoying it, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening right now. Help us out by telling your friends and by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This series is reported by me, Jeff Gehrman. Field and audio recording by Larry Muir. And audio engineering by Greg Conway. Wiretap audio used in this episode is courtesy of Gary Jenkins of Gangland Wire Podcast. You can find out more about those infamous wiretaps on ganglandwire.com. We would like to thank our Mobbed Up Season 2 presenting sponsor, Pro Group Management. 
Additional sponsorship provided by The Golden Steer and El Cortez.